Cinema Sins has a fan club. It's called the Sin Club, and members get all sorts of things like early episodes, bonus videos, merch discounts, and even monthly bonus podcasts. Membership starts at $3 a month, and you can sign up now at patreon.com slash cinemasins. Neil McDonough is such a uh, awful, horrible human being. God, no. Right. No. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Go <laughs> ahead. You can let it out on this on the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined by Jonathan Watkins. Hello, hello. And today we have a very special guest. It is director and co-writer of a movie called Apex, uh, Edward Drake, uh is here to talk with us about that the movie is in theaters vod and digital on november 12th edward uh welcome thank you chris and jonathan pleasure to be here i'm a big fan of the podcast i uh, love the episode that you guys did with um richard kelly uh, on donny oh yeah man he was a great guest uh you, you never know what you're gonna get a lot of times as somebody who's made something that famous Uh, and everything and he was uh, he was absolutely uh, a joy to talk to and i'm glad that you like our podcast and everything so um yeah that's uh uh, i I love here i I love to hear that i love to hear good things about us (laughs) um uh so uh i know that there are i mean you know i I know that there's a direct inspiration for apex but tell me what your inspiration was for this movie i wanted to make a movie where i could get Mr. Willis to say, I'm eggs and bacon on a Sunday morning. That's <laughs> what it seemed like to me. It seemed like a very standout line in that, uh, in this movie to me. Yeah. Uh, I'm only half joking though. I was mm-hmm. around with Corey, uh, and he and I were, uh, just having a chat about what would, what was up next. We were wondering what, what is a story that could be shot safely during COVID uh, we mm-hmm. were one of the first productions back after the oh. lockdowns were lifted. And so we were, it, it was the wild west. There were no vaccines back then. We were just mm-hmm. walking through uh, everything. And it was a, uh, it was a really interesting and amazing way to create a film because I'm very much aware of the world in which we're making and telling these kinds of stories at the moment. Mm-hmm. And art is not made in a vacuum and mm-hmm. nor is it consumed in a vacuum. So you have to be aware of the legacy of the audience and the actors and, you know, what roles they've played in the past and how the audience is going to bring their preconceived ideas to a story like this. And also how do you make a movie in the middle of a pandemic? Right. So I wrote it for uh, like in a way that we could, shoot predominantly outdoors that actors would have limited physical contact with each other uh bruce never had to come into contact with uh another actor um we shot bruce in washington we shot the rest of the film in uh, victoria bc oh, wow. huh. interesting yeah and i was, was actually wondering about that because it seemed like the some of these scenes uh not you know it just seemed like there was there were moments where you had you had to uh, you know, cut in another actor to, you know, uh, you know, I, it's not like you can just totally tell. It's just that I wondered if that's what you did. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, 
I'm very okay with people seeing the seams of a film like this because we created a lot. We actually wrote a white paper that Workplace BC ended up taking large like slabs of our language and putting it in their own official white paper. We were creating the methods to bring people back to work. Mm-hmm. Um, we were the canary in the coal mine. We were under a lot of scrutiny when we were doing this. It was an eight-day shoot over two countries. Wow. It was a... Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm so grateful to Corey and to the cast and crew for their support. And um, yeah, I'm uh, yeah, I'm very grateful. Yeah, there's a uh, you know obviously the 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 biggest uh, comparison would be you know that classic uh, the most dangerous game and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and then you know if you grew up in a certain uh, time like Jonathan and I did surviving the game which <laughs> came out in 1994 I think um, and uh, and then uh, you know there there are other elements to this too like the Running Man and uh, Hostel yep. that uh, uh, pop up in my head while I was watching this. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else that that may have uh, inspired uh, this movie? Uh, Gladiator. I Gladiator. Mean, mm. I love Gladiator because it gives us such a glimpse into the mindset of Commodus, and mm-hmm. that's just that to me is uh, is what I live for. It's getting inside the heads of these like despicable characters. Um, mm-hmm. The hunters were the most interesting part of the story for me in like every single way. Mm-hmm. So I was, uh, I was definitely drawn to the idea of uh, what brings someone to an Island to go and hunt another human being. Mm-hmm. And also playing with the audience's understanding that as soon as the audience knew that they were hunting Bruce Willis, well, guess what? Bruce ain't going to die in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> so subverting what makes him strong because Bruce Bruce is a cheeky action hero. He's not mm-hmm. the strongest. He's not the fastest. He's not like, you know, he's a guy that will go to the mat for what he believes in and he'll bring the audience along in an every man kind of way. And I wanted to play with that idea. And uh, I think that's what's speaking to a lot of audiences that they can see this relatability to Malone that uh, isn't likable per se, mm-hmm. but it's compelling because he's using mind games and he's just taking advantages of or taking advantage of old grudges between uh, these hunters to stay alive and create distractions that bring people in and all this other stuff. And there's definitely a video game element to it, but I think that, you know, where um, you're blind, if you don't understand uh, that a lot of younger audiences, they're, they're playing so many video games um, they're fluent in video game language just as much as they are cinema language. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, that, I was I was going to ask about this because the uh, the movie uh, has a lot to do with uh, has a lot to say about like sort of I guess an ego run amok. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who uh, compare their worth uh, in literal dollars, and mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, uh, by the way, glad to see Lachlan Monroe in this movie. And yeah, he's, he's had a long career, but, uh, like he, he, he stole a couple of, uh, movies early on in the nineties and I love seeing him in this, but, yep. um, uh, 
yeah. So like, yeah, you have the hunters can't even trust each other and they pose mm-hmm. threats to each other. So, so what went into the, de- that decision? Like what, you know, you could have made this Bruce Willis versus the world if you wanted to, but you really sort of kind of made this almost free for all, even though it's not really, that's not really what the parameters of the game is. So yeah. What, what went into that decision? Why did you, why did you go that way? I wanted to create a story that was about, um, uh, the way in, in which idiots try and pick a fight with Bruce Willis. Willis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just the biggest mistake you can make of all time. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it was crazy. Um, mm-hmm. So I just thought that, look, Neil, Neil McDonough and Lachlan Munro, uh, they're mates in real life. And oh, really? Yeah. Uh, they're, you know, their sons play on the same basketball team, or not basketball, uh, baseball team. Huh. Um, and they had a great uh, dynamic and chemistry that I was able to play on as well. Like there's a natural competitiveness among um, these hunters and – you know, Monroe is just so much fun. I just got stuck with him for two days in Dallas. Um, mm-hmm. Our flights got cancelled. So we were just hanging out at the same hotel. And he's the most professional actor mm-hmm. uh, out there. He is such a gem. There's a reason why, you know, his work for uh, you know, Clint Eastwood, uh, Robert yeah. Redford, uh, Bill Bixby, he is such a legend. Um, mm-hmm. He's just a good presence on set. He understands blocking better than any other actor I know. He can see, dude, he can look at a script and he can see the location and he can immediately, like his instincts are so phenomenally on point. He can see exactly how the script is going to translate to this real world location. And he's always down to throw out ideas. And what about this? And what about that? Um, And I love that. I love that energy. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly want to get into the casting because, you know, first off, you're, you're two top stars. I, I really want to know what it's like working with them. Bruce Willis and Neil McDonough, yeah. uh, you know, it, Bruce Willis, of course, has had, you know, a, a world famous career. Neil McDonough, huge character actor who's been in a million things and he's always uh, like, I think he's always great in everything that he's in. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, tell me what it's like working with those two guys. Neil McDonough is such a uh, awful, horrible human being. God no, right, no. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Go he's, ahead, you can let it out on this <laughs> on the podcast. Dude, he's such a he's such a giving performer, and he he brings this natural trust and confidence that when he speaks, uh, when he when he enters the room in a scene, everyone mm-hmm. stands up a little bit straighter and. Yeah it's so rare for an actor to have that quality like uh, uh timothy v murphy uh he's another actor who has that just quiet confidence that he knows his art he knows how to work and he's mm-hmm. going to uh he's going to step up and crush it every time so yeah i think that there's a uh and again bruce has been nothing but kind to me i'm so grateful for uh yeah. you know for you know, his trust and his friendship and um, we have a lot of fun. He, he <laughs> honestly, I think it was one of his favorite days on set uh, ever when we were shooting Apex because we were out in nature. He mm-hmm. was 
eating wild berries straight off the vine. <laughs> um, I, here's a, I mean, we, we lost Bruce Willis for uh, about 20 minutes. I, I kid you not. Uh, we had, so on set, there was private security, there was his team, there was everyone. And um, it was one of the first setups of the first scenes for the film and no one could find Bruce. And everyone went into a panic mode. It was like, okay, we need to do a grid search of the property right now. Let's call the <laughs> National Guard. We need helicopters. Where are the sniffer dogs? Get me, you know. Uh, and then uh, uh, my my best friend, Francis Cronin, um, he was with me on set and he's a uh, ex-Irish army. And so he quietly just dipped away from the commotion and he found Bruce and the um, Bruce had wandered off the property we were shooting on just walked behind a hedge. He was no more than 200 meters away from of course. where I was having this meltdown. And he just found uh, some wild berries on the vine. And uh, instead of disturbing him, Frank ran back to me and was like, you're never going to believe this. He's just gone for a little walk and he's having the time of his life. And <laughs> so I went, uh, I picked up the camera and the scenes that you see of Bruce eating berries are just Bruce eating berries. <laughs> so you added that because he went off on this little uh oh absolutely walk. that's amazing and then you even got in you know you even uh have the uh the sort of the game master uh come in yep. and say you're gonna start tripping balls and all this yeah uh, he also had like his own little uh you know eating berries score which i thought was really fun yeah we wanted <laughs> um, uh in the summertime by mungo uh jerry yeah uh, but we couldn't get clearance for it so we just wanted something that was true to the original pitch which is predator meets mr magoo um, <laughs> i think you I, nailed it yep yeah um so the berry stuff uh i just made that up on the fly because i needed um uh, we we shot Bruce on the first day of filming and we shot Alexia Fast as West, the hologram. Mm -hmm. uh, she was the very final thing we shot. And so what I do after every uh, day that I work with Bruce is I look through my notes and I rejig the dialogue or blocking or action in the script to correlate with what natural gems he just throws out. So every now and then he'll just improv just something that could not possibly be written. And it's so much fun. And it's a lot of films waste those moments because they just don't, they don't have the flexibility to just adapt on the fly and be like, Oh, how can we make this little piece of genius that we got on camera? How can we make that work for us? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's such a gift. That's what I live for when there's a, yeah. When there's a little moment that you're just, that you can't make up that's truthful and usually it's what makes a lot of these films memorable. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, uh, who, uh, we've, we've uh, mentioned a few of the, the bigger names. Uh, what about your, the rest of your cast? Uh, how did you, how did you uh, end up getting them in the movie and what it was like working with them? Uh, Nels Lennison is a very good friend of mine. Um, Corey, mm -hmm. of course, uh, we built a, Corey, a character for Corey that would allow him to be an anchor of humanity mm -hmm. for uh, these killers. Um, and we wanted every, I think what spoke to the cast was the idea that every hunter was drawn to the island for a different personal reason. Mm -hmm. And there's a version of this story where it's just like, great, 
six guys, rich, whatever, pick up guns, go hunt Bruce Willis. What I really wanted to do was uh, my dinner with Andre, but my dinner with Apex. <laughs> and Okay. <laughs> the psychology of why do you want to go and hunt a human being is mm-hmm. just as important as the way in which you're going about hunting another human. Yeah. Um, that was a really fun glimpse into the minds of these uh, these characters and i think the, the the cast were able to see that they were going to get um get to work with some good people megan peter hill as jezza was so much mm-hmm. fun uh megan's one of my favorite human beings and i was mm-hmm. so happy when uh, uh you know this the script spoke to her and um her scene with nels uh as bishop during yeah. the mind scene that was one of the first things i wrote and i'm i fought to keep that in because it is a bit long uh, on the page but mm-hmm. i knew that once it got up on its legs and i knew that with nels and megan playing off each other there would be a fantastic dynamic and um, <laughs> yeah and it ends with a bang uh <laughs> it does <laughs> so so yeah very grateful and then trevor gretzky as well i've got to give a shout out to trevor because mm. i met trevor on the set of cosmic sin where mm. we had 20 minutes to shoot the opening scene of that film um and his instincts were just so on point and after that little like we we shot his little scene and then we were having a chat out afterwards and i said dude i really hope we can work together again soon your instincts are so on point you knew exactly how to play to the camera you took direction incredibly and seeing him grow from uh this I was seeing him go from Cosmic Sin to Apex, and then he has a great, great turn in a little film called American Siege. And mm. I'm so proud of that dude. He has, like, yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy, and I wish him nothing but the best. And as an actor, he's just going from strength to strength. So was there, was there any uh, intention in the way his character was constructed as kind of being someone that, you know, is in the, I mean, his character in the movie is someone I, the, you may get the impression he's kind of in living in the shadow of his father. <laughs> that was not intentional, but it was definitely the, huh. a truth that he could play into. Now that that's not true in real life. No, no. I, yeah, no, I understand in real life, but I've just, I just, the fact that he has like a famous dad that just, I just remember that popped in my head. I, I've, I've known about him for a while just cause I'm a Chicago Cubs fan and he was, he was right. drafted by them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was a really good baseball player. Oh, he was cute. Yeah, he was yeah. too fast. Um, he, yes, he was definitely able to play into the idea of that because it's something that has been around the conversation of his relationship mm. with his own father for a long time. Mm. So, and that's fantastic. Anytime I can bring a, the actor's real inner world, their inner truth, closer to the character that's where the magic happens because there's mm. only so much time we have on these sets. Um, this was an eight day shoot and mm. I needed to be able to play to instincts more than we could create these like new characters that are, that are just born whole cloth sort of a thing. Uh, and look, Trevor never dropped a line, always hit his mark and look good doing it. And so there's nothing that's pretty much 90% of a actor's challenge. The other 10% is finding that magic and making it. Why are they cast? Why are they the person that is bringing this character to life? Um, but yeah, yeah, very. Happy. I want to re. I want to rewind to 
when you first started talking about him, did you say you had 20 minutes to do the opening scene? Oh yeah. Yeah. That was a, uh, that was a hell of a, um, that was a hell of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I, you're talking about, and we're talking about uh cosmic sin here, right? The, uh, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> 20 minutes, like, uh, uh yeah. what were the circumstances for that? Um, I had a line producer that was threatening to kill me if I went over. So no. <laughs> oh yeah. A shout out to Joe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's amazing uh, how a couple little death threats can really motivate you to get your scene. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. We, so cosmic sin was a 17 day shoot that got halved because of um, COVID. And mm-hmm. we found out two days before that the lockdown was going to hit. And so uh, I had to make a story out of the footage that was already shot. Plus the two days that were um, that we had coming up. Mm. And so that will always be like, I am to this day, I am still writing cosmic sin in my head. And that is such, there is so much that we wanted to do with that story that it just, the universe conspired and it was not the right time to tell that story. Mm. Um, I'm so proud of the effort of, you know, our amazing production designer, David Dean Ebert. Um, he had a packet of peanuts and, <laughs> you know, a, a neon highlighter and he made that set come to life. Uh, Brandon Cox, our great DP, we were under the gun from day one. Um, you know, the fact that the fact that the film got made in the first place uh, is a, is a small miracle. I'm, I just wish uh, we could have done. We could have, I wish we could have brought to life what was on the page, uh, but you know what? Live and learn. And I'm grateful to the financiers, to Bond it, to Buffalo Eight and Corey for their continued trust and faith that uh, we can tell some pretty cool stories. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You, you must feel like an, an, an like an accidental Ed Wood pl- making a movie like that, right? Where it's like, uh, you know, you see, you make a, you you do a scene and something's just not quite right, but you're like, eh, you know, whatever. They'll let you, they'll get the people get over it. They know what they're watching, and then you move on to the next thing, you know, type of thing. I mean, it must be. I mean, anybody who's seen Living in Oblivion knows this. Uh, indie film uh world has got to be kind of crazy sometimes but also maybe exhilarating sometimes too yeah when your back is up against the wall there is definitely uh an adrenaline rush that comes with writing your way out of a corner um Mm -hmm. 
I live to write. I wake up very, I wake up early every day so that I can get a few hours of just writing before LA wakes up. And mm -hmm. um, writing is how I communicate with the world and uh, understand myself and all that good stuff. So yes, there is a, there is a rush that comes with like, suddenly our 20 day shoot is now a 10 day shoot. And now we have to double Southern Georgia for Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> it's the same. What are you talking about? That same. is definitely tough. <laughs> having been around Southern Georgia, um, I yeah. don't know how you would have done it, but uh, you know, I guess you tell people that it's California and you know, you let your mind, you let your imagination run the rest. So, well, it, the, the film I'm referencing is called Gasoline Alley. And mm -hmm. when you have actors like uh, Luke Wilson and especially Devin Sawa, who <laughs> can be so like trusting mm -hmm. and, and they're not winking at the audience uh, in Devin's, in Devin's case, um, when he believes he's in Los Angeles and you're seeing that it's so compelling and yeah. it's hard to, it, yeah, he does so much of the believe he brings so much believability to that character into that world and then you again you pick your battles we're not shooting cow fields and say, and saying that it's um you know sunset uh boulevard yeah yeah <laughs> right. i was gonna say man carpenter got away calling california getting california to look like illinois he still had palm trees in there so i mean <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um fun there's a look there's a fun challenge to this this world and i'm very grateful for the opportunities mm -hmm. um i i love this one scene that you have in apex where um you know the hologram is telling all the hunters uh who bruce willis is and everything um yeah. I am assuming that a lot of the things that he survives in this are references to his other movies. Are you, is that, am I correct on that? No, of course. Where would you get that idea from? <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it's funny because it lulled me into this, you know, this false, you, you always hear the bio of the, yep. of the badass in the movies and you're just like, okay, well here he, here's what he did. He wouldn't, he was in Vietnam and he's got 37 kills under his belt and all that. You're expecting that. But I, but, but when I heard fell out of a building and survived it or, or <laughs> something like that, and then especially survived that train crash, like we're all supposed to know what the train crash is. I was like, Oh, Oh, we know he, so he's referencing, uh, that, uh, that's a nice touch. Can you name the references? Oh yeah. I mean, that scene originally went for about four minutes and mm -hmm. <laughs> Alexia, Alexia fast who uh, plays West. She hadn't seen 90% of the movies. So she had no really? idea. It. So that's why her delivery is so natural and like emotionless. It's like, mm -hmm. yes, this man is a badass. He has, you know, overcome these incredible obstacles. Um, <laughs> the, the one that tripped her up that had her asking questions was, uh, he was the sole survivor after flying a NASA, uh, NASA shuttle into an asteroid and saving the world. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she pulls me aside and she's like, "Is this? Could you really survive that?" And I was like, "Well, Bruce can." And she's like, "Great." Yep, yep. <laughs> Bruce can and has. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, that was a that was a nice touch because, like I said, it's one of those where. 
it, it, it's that point in the movie where you just like, ah, okay, well, this is what, this is all his badass characteristics. And then like halfway through it, you're like, wait a minute, this might be kind of a jokey thing. I like that. To be fair to her though, we all had that same question in the summer of 1997 or 98. So, you know, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I want to close my Um, you've mentioned the broad uh, places where you shot this. Uh, could you could you name specifically, and what was it like shooting there in those locations? Yeah, we were we shot for two days in Blaine, Washington, which mm-hmm. is about twenty minutes from the Canada U.S. border, and then we shot for six days in uh, Victoria, B.C., which is a mm-hmm. ferry ride away from Vancouver, and. Uh, Geographically, they might be separated by, you know, uh, the Canada-US border, but mm-hmm. uh, ecologically, they are incredibly similar. So mm-hmm. that's why a lot of our scenes we were able to turn around and it's a lot of the same flora, you know, fauna, the bird sounds are the same. Mm-hmm. The energy is the same. The only tricky thing, uh, well, one of the trickier things was that in the time that we went from, so we shot Bruce's two days, then we went down for 14 days for quarantine, and then we came back up in BC. And in those 14 days, the wildfires in Oregon had got out of control. So we had this natural haze that came through. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was unexpected and there was nothing we could do about it. So what I did is I rejigged the blocking mentally to suggest that Bruce was at a higher elevation sometimes and looking down. So there was clouds cover, there was stuff. And I think, um, you know, no one, as soon as people find out that it was shot in two different countries and that Bruce never really interacted with another actor, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, people, there's a lot of faith and a lot of trust you can build by telling the audience, this is what is happening. This is it. And then the movie magic comes in just knowing when to push the boundaries and, and knowing, you know, what shortcuts will really damage the film and break the believability and that sort of a thing. It's interesting because Jonathan asked me, was there ever a scene in there where Bruce Willis interacted with another actor? And I was like, well, I don't know. I, I thought he did. I thought he was with McDonough in one scene, but maybe not. Maybe it's the, uh, you know, maybe it's the, you know, cut in such a certain way or whatever. So we were having that discussion, uh, you know, at least it's, it's, uh, you know, it's enough to make you believe that they're in the same scene. So I, I, I came out thinking they at least did the one. So, yeah. And I mean, I figured there was, you know, COVID reasons and, you know, stuff like that, that would, you know, keep the actor separate. I was shocked when you told me you shot in two different locations though. Cause I, that, that I wouldn't have known. I, I assumed you were always in the same place. So definitely that was yeah it came with its own challenges but again we made it work for us like more we can i think as filmmakers we are naturally resistant to the geography of certain locations a lot of you know a lot of friends that i have you know will eliminate a great location because it doesn't fit with the script well guess what if you've got a great location it's available it works for production um have a look at the script and see if it can't work for you as well because i promise every time you get a problem and you dig deeper into the story everything will be rewarded for it that's where the magic yeah. is out. Mm-hmm. So, 
absolutely. Um, uh, uh, one, I don't know if you if you bothered to sketch this out, but what was what's the world like outside of this island? Uh, because there's a a futuristic element to this. Mm-hmm where people are being transported just like at star trek to the island uh there's a lot of hologram imagery in it um but when people are getting called uh from other places it looks like you know life as usual but there's obviously a i don't know i would say it's not a a not too distant future feel to this uh so uh could you describe what the world is like outside yeah, I wanted to create a world where inequality was like uh, running, running wild, essentially. And to teleport was something that was only restricted to the upper echelons and the elite. And mm-hmm. so it's cheaper to transport people with a flying helicopter. Uh, all helicopters fly. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> but a, <laughs> you know, uh, to transport a shipping crate with a helicopter than it just teleport someone there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm all, I always look at uh, like photos of the 1920s and there are such clear parallels between like modern day life and, you know, even going back to the 19th, 20th century. Like if you think that, uh, you know, everyone had a horse back then, well, everyone has a car now. And the mm-hmm. way that we talk about cars is probably the way that they were talking about horses back then. Mm-hmm. Um, we communicate uh, as well. I always find it funny when older generations say, oh, everyone's just got their head in their phones all the time. If you look at photos of people in transit, um, you know, everyone's reading a book or a newspaper. Yeah, it, There's always parallels and nice little analogies that we can play on. And I just thought it felt truthful that, yeah, we're still probably going to have phones. We're still going to have smartwatches. Uh, these are things that, are tactile and functional and they work now and they serve a per and they will serve a purpose moving forward. Yeah. Um, and then I reference a war as well. And, uh, there was a, uh, there's a sequel to apex that's in the works at the moment, which oh, really? really digs. Yeah. looks at what, how that war was able to create this generation of, uh, very wealthy individuals that, needed uh to satiate the urges that were created from that war and a lot of the uh tendencies the violent tendencies that we see in the rich and the wealthy are born from conflict and from surviving conflict because once you've tasted those heights of you know life and death everything seems to pale in comparison in some regard uh, we would like to thank uh, Edward Drake for coming in and giving us his time. Uh, the movie is Apex. Uh, it comes out in theaters, VOD, and digital November 12th. Uh, Edward, thanks a lot for talking to us today. Chris, Jonathan, stay awesome. Uh, yeah, have a great time, and uh, I'll speak to you soon. All right, that's going to do it for this interview. It's Chris Atkinson and Jonathan Watkins. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube. Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasends.com.
and apparently we have another 10 minutes. But um, <laughs> Jesus Christ, let it end, please. No. <laughs> yeah, what's, um, have you guys seen Dune yet? I have not seen yeah. it all the way yet. I, I, am, I intend to uh, see it um, in the next few days, actually. Uh, I was started watching it on HBO Max, and then I had uh, my brother wanted to see it, and I was like, well, I might, I might watch it with him, so... Nice. Um, I, I have I've seen it. Yes. Yeah. What do, does it feel like one story, or is it definitely something that's set up for two stories, like a sequel? It's definitely set up for a sequel. Uh, the question is, I guess, is even if it did as well as it did, how many people from that original viewing want to see the next uh, mm. uh, installment? I guess that would be the next question. Yeah. It's it's weird, like because I mean you've had movies like that before. Like, you know, you knew kill bill was kill bill volume one and, uh, you know, it chapter one, that kind of thing. But I don't know, this one felt different. Like it really, like it doesn't really have an ending. (laughs) It's really weird. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. I I think with something like kill bill. Yeah. It's a complete story. Um, I actually saw kill bill volume two before I saw kill bill volume one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, by sheer mistake, because I was not old enough to go and see the movies. So I, <laughs> um, I stole a copy from Blockbuster and I didn't know <laughs> which one I picked up and it was volume two. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to go and like, give it back. So I watched volume two and I could understand everything that was going on. And then mm-hmm. my experience of volume two was enriched by what I saw in volume one. <laughs> so there's a, I feel like... With feature films, what differentiates a feature film from TV is that we get closure to a large extent. We want mm-hmm. like an emotional, like you know, cathartic release, if that's even a thing. <laughs> cathartic. Cathartic release. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. trying to twist the word to express what I mean. It's a right. That's the difference for me between features and TV. No, I think you're right. Like the film itself by itself has to work on its own mm-hmm. um, as its own thing. Whereas like an episode of a television show probably needs other episodes. I mean, depending on the type of show it is. But yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Well, yeah. it's like you watch Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows volume one or part one. And it's like, oh, well, that was just the first act of a movie of, of one big movie. Yeah, that's kind of what Dune's like. That, that's a good comparison to what mm-hmm. Dune's like. One of the best TV shows I've seen, God, it, it, I think it's one of the best uh, stories ever committed to film, is uh, Midnight Mass by Mike Flanagan. I, I just so started good. watching that the so other good. day, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing it. Yeah, um, it looks great. Yeah, I, I was raised in a, a Jesuit environment. I went to a Jesuit high school. And I, you know, like came of age in a time where America was wrestling with its spirituality in a really interesting way. And what Mike Flanagan does is he looks at what, what it means to have had this upbringing uh, and what that means to walk through the world with this worldview. But he tied up every loose end. This story, it's a complete story. And I love that. Uh, I know we have to sell subscription services to for Netflix and HBO and keep people on the hook and 
you know, cliffhangers have existed ever since Charles Dickens literally had a character hanging off a cliff. And there's ways that we can, you know, tell these stories in in that way to keep you wanting more. Um, but there's just something about a, a great feature film is something mm-hmm. that's... Uh, uh, gives the audience a moment to breathe from the real world and uh, disappear into another world. And yeah, I really admire that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Which isn't to uh, say that I won't love Dune because I would. Hey, no, it's, it's, it's still really good. Like I'm not, I, I definitely liked it. The, the, you know, Denise great with world building and mm-hmm. I mean, he nails it in a way that I don't think Lynch was able to quite get a grasp on. That probably wasn't all Lynch's fault, but. Uh, Denis has a better handle on it, I think. I w- the, my final thing I was going to say is uh, uh, Hyperion, the Dan Simmons novel. Mm-hmm. Looks like uh, uh, Bradley Cooper has finally mm-hmm. settled up over at Warner Brothers, and that is such a seminal sci-fi text. That is incredible. I can't wait to see what they do with that. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm and that'll be a good one too because that'll because I don't think that's not one we really talk about anymore. So that'll that'll uh, that it, it, you know it'll bring that to people's attention i think mm-hmm. which will be really cool because that is that is a really good i love salmons so have mm-hmm. you ever read the red rising trilogy or by oh. uh, there's five no. there's actually five in the series now um uh they are incredible it's uh, to uh to be redundant um it's game of thrones in space oh really <laughs> It is incredible. Some of the visuals, um, it's by an author called Pierce Brown and book five has some of the like grandest, most epic writing, uh, since, uh, Dante's Inferno. It's incredible stuff. I urge anyone to check it out. Um, yeah. And it's kind of, yeah. Sounds like I have a bunch now on my reading list in addition (laughs) to all the stuff that I'm supposed to watch as well. So thanks for that. That's amazing. Um, (laughs) 